Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Well, as we get here to a collective display of faith by the nation of Israel, the verb that we're going to zero in on from these verses about Israel's faith, each week we're like, here's the person, here's what they did by faith. So far we've had a whole litany of uh, expressions of faith. This morning with Israel, we're going to see that they experienced God by faith. By faith, what a cool testimony. This is the testimony of Israel that we see here in this passage. They didn't just know about God conceptually, but Israel is a people who ex- collectively experienced God together. That's what we read there in those verses. They experienced God at the Passover where his grace was poured out on them, pardoning them because of the blood. They experienced the delivering power of God at the Red Sea. They didn't just talk about concepts of God. They experienced the reality of his delivering power. Uh, And then lastly, we see them at Jericho in Canaan. God bringing them into the promised land, giving them victory as they experience God's triumphant work in their midst. Um, What a great vision for what the people of God should be experiencing. Uh, You know, this is a a central principle in scripture. This idea, and I want you to really zero your mind in on this. If there's one thing I really hope we walk away from with uh, today, it's this idea. This idea that we see here in Israel, with Israel, the idea that we see all throughout scripture, this idea that God is not merely a idea, an idea to be conceptualized but he is a person to be experienced. God is not a mere idea to be conceptualized, which is where a lot of us can find ourselves sometimes in our faith, just with ideas about God. But what the Christian faith calls us into, what Jesus invites us into, is a real experience of a relationship with a living God. Let me ask you this question this morning. In your life, how have you experienced God. I want you to just think about your own life for a second and think about your own experience. I'm sure if you're in this room, I'm just going to bet the farm that you have heard some ideas about God. You may have a ton of ideas about God if you're raised in the church or even just being raised in our American context. There's some idea, there's some conception of God, and that's great. But when you talk about God, when you think about God, When you speak about God, let me ask you, are you speaking from experience? There's nothing like learning from someone who's actually experienced the thing that they're telling you about, right? There's a a whole different journey there. I think of the difference between me trying to give Judah golf lessons, my eight-year-old, and Patrick who is a friend of ours, who's a college golfer, an amateur golfer. He gave Judah lessons a couple days ago, and it was all, it's crazy, like, the growth spurt that Judah experienced with that short golf lesson. I've been giving Judah golf lessons for, like, a year now. This guy comes in just a moment, a a quick lesson with this guy, and Judah is already hitting the ball farther. He's hitting it straighter and and just as, as good as his dad, to be honest. But it's not important. Golf. Now, The reason why Judah benefited so much from Patrick's lesson is because Patrick was speaking. He was teaching from real experience. All I could really give Judah is my own experience, which is not a positive one. We'll say that. 
I don't, when I talk about golf, I'm not speaking from a, it's usually a depressing experience. Or I'm speaking from YouTube videos that I watch, right? I'd like you to watch this video. We're going to learn this together. Okay, this is how you do it. You see, see how he twists? Judah's over there already skating. I'm like, come here. Golf, come on. Um, but with Patrick, it's somebody that can download his own experience. And again, this is like the language that Scripture uses to describe a relationship with God. It's experiential language. One of my favorite Scriptures that I, I kind of, I mention this a lot. I'm not sure if I mentioned uh, it recently here, but one of the most life-changing moments of my life is when I move from a relationship with God as a concept to a relationship with God as a person, a real living person, like my, my actual father in heaven. That's a true thing. And, and it, was one, it was actually one single scripture that I heard a preacher proclaiming at a Psalm 34, 8, which says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, 8. I was 18 years old. Changed my life. Because, you know, I grew up in the church. I grew up with concepts. But this is a whole other idea. A whole other idea, which is, hey, don't just know these things. It's one thing to know that that restaurant, everyone talks about it. They say it's awesome. You could look up the menu. You can, you know, run circles around someone if you study enough about some restaurant. It's a whole other thing to come pull up to the table and taste of the glory. To taste of God. To taste and see that he's good. I mean, that for me is what's changed my life is not religion, but a relationship with the living God. Uh, one of the most, I think, helpful reminders of this for me recently is an, is an article that I read um, in The Atlantic by the late, or not, sorry, rather, not the late great, but uh, Tim Keller, by the great Tim Keller, I'll say. Uh, an incredible thinker, an incredible pastor. Um, Tim Keller has been battling pancreatic cancer. And it's been a journey that he's been on for some years. You know Tim Keller, by the way. You've heard him preach, too, because he preaches here every Sunday, if you know what I'm saying. Every quote and every Muslim, a lot of the, the gospel-centered ideas I get come from Keller. But it was a really incredible article that, that Tim Keller wrote in this secular publication about what he's learning as he is facing death. He's a Christian minister who grew up his whole life you know, at people's you know, death bedside comforting them about what's to come in the afterlife, comforting them about the rest. Jesus is alive, so you will live too. You know, these principles. But Tim Keller talks about sort of this thing that we all face. I'm not sure if you face this. Like, I definitely do as a pastor. I found that, like, it's easier for me sometimes to convince others of the comfort of God than it is to convince myself. It's easier for me to, like, influence and inspire and experience in someone else. But what does it look like for me personally to experience these truths? And, and Tim Keller's talking about that as, as he, for the first time, is actually, like, facing his mortality. Like, well, I'm, I have pancreatic cancer, and I'm face-to-face -face with, um, per a miracle, unless God provides a miracle, I'm face-to-face -face with the end of my life here on earth. And in the article, Tim Keller was referring to the journey he's been on of really asking God to take the things that are in his head and download them down to his heart. God, take what I know about you theoretically and make it true to me personally. I can tell someone that there's hope for life after death, but God, I want to so experience that truth that I'm comforted by it, that I'm not afraid in the face of death. There's a big difference from that. In the article, he quotes from... Um, a writing by T uh, Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards unpacks this kind of concept, which sort of summarizes everything we've, we've, we've been talking about here already. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, 
says that there is a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. There is a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and tasting of its sweetness. And Keller refers to this as something he's after at the end of his life. And, you know, I'm inspired. I don't want to be at the end of my life seeking to double down on an experience with God. I don't want to waste any time with the Lord. I want to here and now do so much more than just have ideas about God. But I want to experience what the gospel invites you and I into, a relationship with the living God, something not just to know but to Experience. So one more time, that question, how have you in your life experienced God? Can this be true of you? Are you someone that has an opinion about the sweetness of honey? Or have you had the taste of the sweetness of honey on your mouth? You've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Well, Israel, again, here in Hebrews 11, is modeling an experience with God. And I love that it's a collective experience, too. It could be an individual experience, but what Hebrews 11 is showing us with Israel is that they were a community of faith experiencing God together. Like, if that's not church, I don't know what is. In fact, if that's not church, it's really just religion, isn't it? A community of people gathering around, doing religious things, singing the songs, waving their hands, ringing the bells, lighting the candles, you know? I mean, if, if that's all it is, if, if all we're doing is gathering, doing religious things without a genuine experience with the love of God, without a genuine experience of the power of God, then we are, we're genuinely wasting our time. But what a great vision for who we could be as a church, who the, uh, the nation of Israel was, a community of people, listen to this, who were experiencing God together. And that's both individual and collective. You know, I envision God working in each of your lives individually, the experience you have with him when you're alone. Certainly the experience we have with him when we're together here. But just think about the experiences that we're having with God individually, and then we come together, and we bring those experiences into our fellowship, and we testify to who God's been in our lives. We testify from experience. We encourage one another with who God is, and then together we experience him. We experience his voice when we center around his word. We experience fresh visions of his glory when we worship. I mean, this is who I want soulless church to be. It's who I want us to be. Not a bunch of know-it-alls, not a bunch of religious people, but a community of faith experiencing God together. There's so many different things about God that you could experience. It's like, you know, if I sent you to some of my favorite restaurants, like Las Fajitas, Glory to God. You could spend a solid year going through the little menu there and enjoying the different renditions. There's, there's so, there's, it's like that with your favorite restaurant as well. And with God, there's so many different things. This is what's so fun about God. Can I say this? Um, there's no limit to, the, to an experience with God. Like, nobody's ever, like, you ride a roller coaster, you're like, oh, that was a great experience. No one's ever got off the God roller coaster and been like, that was a great experience. God, I experienced God, and now I'm done, and it was great. No, with God, there's always more to experience. Isn't that awesome? There's always more of him that you haven't realized. There's always a, a new work that you haven't encountered yet with God. And, and so th there's this unlimited supply of experiences that we can have with God. Uh, here, Israel, they model three, I think, really helpful ones. And uh, these were true of Israel, three things that they experienced with God. And there are so many things I would hope that we would 
But I think these are some important ones that we can at least start with. What are some things in the text that we read here this morning? What are some of the things that Israel experienced with God? Well, the first one we saw there was in verse 28. It says that by faith, Moses kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. This is the first thing that the scriptures teach us that they, them, experienced with God. And you can write it down this way. Israel experienced the pardoning grace of God together. The pardoning grace of God together. The pardoning, the forgiveness of God's love and his grace upon them despite their sinfulness before him. Uh, you, you know the account here. This is referring back to what we studied last week. Moses, he's God's messenger to Pharaoh, seeking to free them from the slavery that the people of God are in, in bondage under Egypt. Moses is calling Pharaoh uh, on behalf of God to let my people go. And you could say that Pharaoh is stubborn. Scriptures say he's hard-hearted. He keeps hardening his heart against the Lord. Eventually, the Lord turns Pharaoh's evil against him, and the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. And this is through a series of events. Um, the worst of it culminates with the tenth plague, the tenth calamity that God brought upon Egypt because they wouldn't budge. It was like, tap out, tap out, tap out, and they wouldn't tap. Let my people go, let my people go. Rear naked, choke hold, and everything, right? And the tenth plague shows up, and it is the... The justice that God executes on the nation, specifically, he brings an angel of death to take the lives of all the firstborn. This is what, by the way, Pharaoh sought to do to God's people. So God is coming in justice. Uh, it's, it's a pretty heavy section of scripture. It tells us uh, that, that Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, pick out and take lambs for yourselves according to your families and kill the Passover lamb. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in, in the blood that's in the basin and strike the lintel and the two doorposts of your house with the blood that's in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. This is what God's telling his enslaved people in Egypt. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and the doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door. That's where we get the idea of Passover from. And not allow the destroyer to come into your house to strike you. And then God tells Israel, you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. This becomes an annual uh, meal and feast that, that Israel gathers to celebrate, to remember this incredible work of God. But again, what's going on here? What is Israel experiencing? Well, first and foremost, you know, as, as we see here in this verse, they're keeping the Passover. God gives them instructions and they're, they're, they're saved. The first thing that we see happening here is we see the justice of God on display, first and foremost. God is a God of justice. God is a God of righteousness. God is a God who, in the end, will make every wrong right. He doesn't always bring justice in our timeline, in our way. By the way, we should be thankful for that because of the justice that we deserve before him. But God is a God of justice. So we see God here. You know, God is not to be messed with. There's another way to say that. You know, we're not subs or God isn't subservient to us and our ideas of what we want and no, no, God reigns high and holy as the king of the universe, executing perfect justice. And that's what he's doing here for Israel. He's bringing justice to this nation. But I want you to notice that Israel doesn't get a special pass. Israel doesn't get a special pass. They, they don't get to just be passed over because they're Israel. 
No, there has to be blood applied to the household for them to be passed over. So this is really interesting. God is executing justice, but he's also providing salvation. This is, by the way, also true of God. God executes justice, but in his mercy, he provides salvation. So those who die in their sin will receive the justice due their sin. We all are in that position, even Israel here. But this God of justice, he extends his hand of love to you and I, and he says, be saved. Now, how was Israel saved from the death that would come to their door? They were saved, listen closely, by trusting in the blood of the Lamb. There was nothing in and of themselves that they could do to be passed over. There was nothing special about them that God would go, you know what, I actually like you. It's nothing like that. There was nothing more than guiltiness before this holy God because of their own sin. Their hope of salvation, listen closely, is the same hope of our salvation, which is trusting in the blood of the Lamb. The Bible says that Jesus is the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. In fact, 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says this, that Christ is our Passover. Isn't that awesome? You see, just as Israel um, experienced this grace, we, we, we could say it this way, what the blood of the Lamb over the doorposts did for Israel in the Old Testament, the blood of Jesus does for us today. Jesus is our Passover lamb. We all stand guilty before God as sinners, but the hope of our salvation is the blood of Jesus. Here's the question that you ask yourself in terms of your hope of salvation, your hope of eternity. Has the blood of the lamb been applied to you in your sin? That's the only question. Not were you better than your neighbor, not did you um, perform more good works than you did sins. The question is, have you experienced the righteousness and the grace of God that is extended through the blood of Jesus? Now, that's what's in, in the Bible that's called the gospel. The gospel is good news that though we deserve death, for the wages of sin is death, the good news of the gospel is that God has gifted us, his son Jesus, to be saved. And again, we're not saved by any works. We're not saved by, or, or not saved because of bad works. We're saved through trusting in the blood. And so that's our testimony as well. This is the testimony of Israel. Now, I wanna, what I want to point out about this is that last verse we looked at, where Israel, as they experienced the grace of God passing over them, through the sacrifice that God provided of the lamb, they were commanded through the, the institution of the Passover to reflect on this grace that God extended to them each and every year together. And I'm sure it didn't just come to mind once a year. I'm sure it came to mind every time a parent looked at their firstborn child and thought about the mercy of God, thought about the grace of God, thought about the fact that even though our sin puts us in a place where death is the only option ahead of us, God intervenes and saves. Um, this was to be a regular reflective thing for them. And as we kind of think about our own lives, as we think about this grace and this righteousness, you know, we too have a meal called the communion table that Jesus instituted for the church where we break bread and we think about the body of Jesus 
paying our debt on that cross, where we, we drink from the cup and we reflect on the blood of the lamb that has cleansed us from our sin. And Jesus said, as often as you gather and you take this meal, you're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. You know, the idea of this is that God doesn't want the work of the cross, the work of the gospel, which is the center stage of the New Testament, to be sort of filed away as another experience. God doesn't want what can very easily happen, which is we say, thank you, Jesus, I've been washed in the blood, and now I continue to try to earn my way back into your favor. Now I continue to try to live my way according to these laws, trying to keep a relationship with you. And so there's this call for the church to gather and remember. Why do we need to do that? Well, because we can forget. We can forget that the basis of our relationship with God is not our works. It's not our performance. It's Jesus. It's what he's done for us. And the communion table, it provides for us an opportunity to experience that grace in a fresh way. Which, by the way, you don't have to come to church in the communion table to do that. Um, you know, Part, part of a, a daily routine, a healthy routine for any Christian, is to say, God, here is my sin from today. I, just, I, mean, I could do this whole week. We'd be, we'd be here all week, right? Here's, just my, here's my sin from this evening. Let's just start there, okay, God? Here's my sin. Here's the sins I thought. Here's the, things, the sins I said. And here's the sins I did. You see them, God, and I'm coming to you and I'm conscious of those sins. I'm not trying to justify myself. I'm, I'm seeing the reality of my sin. And now, God, I move my attention and I'm conscious of the cross. I'm conscious of what Jesus did to pay for those sins. I'm conscious of the application of your righteousness on my life. God, I'm conscious of the fact that I'm not right with you or I'm not holy because of my works, but because of your works. And what begins to happen when we practice this thing called repentance and faith in the gospel is Romans 5.5 says this, that the love of God is poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. What a cool way to understand the gospel. It's not just an idea, Oh, because I, I I mean, and I'm guilty of this, I can stand up here all day long and articulate the intricacies of the gospel. Here's the gospel, here's what happened, and you, you all to some degree can do it as well. But here's the real question. Here's how well you know the gospel. Has the love of God been poured out in your heart this week? Have you actually experienced the reality of that gospel? Have you been changed by it? Have you been formed by it? Israel was to be a people who were identified with the grace and the mercy and the love of God. And that's who we're to be as well. Um, Paul even said, or rather Peter even says this in 1 Peter 2. He says, he's talking about the church and how they're, they're to desire God. And he says, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is gracious. Isn't that, that's the same language we've talked about, right? It's one thing to be like, yeah, God is gracious. It's a whole other thing to be like, I've tasted of his grace. Because I came to him in my sin. And where sin abounded, grace abounded even more. So, so I know what it's like to taste of his grace. And can I just say, like, maybe this is at the top of the list for what a community of faith needs to experience with God. Like, if we're not going to just be a religious gathering of religious people, there must be regular and recurring experiences with the grace of God. A couple of things that I think this will produce in a church. When this happens, let me, let me talk about what I think this could look like 
When, when we allow the grace of God to shape us, we gain a grace-based identity. And this is so big for a church, for a community of faith that are seeking to do life together. Um, your identity is how you see yourself. It's the value you ascribe to yourself, or it's the opposite. It's the lack of value you may ascribe to yourself. It's how you see and understand yourself and your worth. That's your identity. You know, the great apostle Paul talks about how important it is to have an identity that's not based in anything else except for the grace of God. Here's, here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul's like, yo, I'm an apostle, but I'm the least of the apostles. If you look at my resume, you look at my, my rap sheet, I don't really deserve to be here. Like, how did I get in? I hope nobody asks me, you know? He says, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle because before I was an apostle, I was hostile and I used to persecute the church of God on behalf of Judaism. I used to kill Christians. And that is, of course, until Paul came face to face with, listen, an experience with Jesus, changed his whole life. And he stood before Jesus, a guilty sinner, and Jesus extended grace to him. And he thought he was about to be smoted, smiting, smithen, Weston, all right? He thought it was about to go down. And Jesus says, stand up. I'm saving you. I'm rescuing you. I died for you. I have a new purpose for you. And so Paul goes, after that encounter and experience, Paul says, now it's by the grace of God that I am what I am. Now, that's, that's all I really want us to focus on. This is who I am, the least of the apostles. But I love that Paul goes, my disqualifications don't Give me my identity. My identity is not what I failed to do. Now, what's interesting is Philippians 3, Paul lists all of his justifications. Like, Paul has a list of the things that disqualify him. Do you have, by the way, do you have a list of that? Of course you do, right? Your list of disqualifications, maybe you're conscious of the list, maybe you're not, but a list of all the things that, that would make you stand before God undeserving. Undeserving, the things that we've done wrong. Those are the list of disqualifications. In Philippians 3, Paul has a list of justifications. He has a list of all the things that he's tempted to puff his chest out for a little bit and go, well, you know what? Look who I am before God. God like, looks at me and he's like, you're standing out. You're a really righteous one. You do a lot of righteous things. You're a churchgoer. You're a spiritual person. You're not like them. You know, you vote this way and not that way. It's like all these different things that we could derive our identities from, these, these sort of moral achievements. So, so whether they're moral disqualifications or moral justifications, the things that tempt us to, to have an identity in our performance, Paul says, I love that. In Philippians 3, he goes, I, I count them as rubbish. Those are not the source of who I am. The source of who I am before a holy and perfect God is forgiven and loved by the grace of God. And this is so huge because this kind of identity that doesn't see yourself based on your performance, whether good or bad, will then affect your ministry. This is so important. This will affect how you minister to other people. It'll affect how you communicate to them. It'll affect, first of all, It'll affect how you act as well, because like, there's this unspoken thing when someone is self-righteous, it's known. It's not like a secret. Like Self-righteousness, it tends to wear itself very outwardly, and it can be very visible. And, and so there's something about that that can push people away. Um, but, but there's something about a grace-based identity that says, hey, I, I'm, and here's the expression, by the way, I'm just like you. 
Like that's what, by the way, things happen in a church when people start to go, oh, I'm, we're, we're the same thing. Humans, creating the image of God, fallen because of sin. We just have different versions of brokenness. <laughs> we, have different, we have different symptoms from, this, or from the same fall. And so ministry starts to be grace-based and not law-based, not performance-based. There's something about this, like, because when you experience grace, if, and here's the true test of whether or not you've really experienced grace, you extend grace. He who's forgiven much loves much. So, so here's what it looks like when you've seen your own sin and seen Jesus as Savior. Someone comes to you and they confess their sin, and you don't preach them a do-better message, you preach them a gospel message. You say, well, well I'm still your friend. Jesus still loves you. He still welcomes you because your identity is not in that thing. It's in what Jesus did. There's something about the ministry that's birthed out of a grace-based identity. As opposed to law, as opposed to a posture that says, you need to do better. You need to try harder. And, and this, this sort of spirit that, like, and I, I think one of the biggest things is, like, doesn't give people space to struggle or room to wrestle. So let me stop talking. Here's what the Bible says. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Do you see this? Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. You see that? You who are spiritual, what does it mean to be spiritual? It means you understand your own vulnerabilities. You understand your own brokenness. And that humility, it doesn't it doesn't push people away because you're self-righteous. It brings people close. You, you can impress people with your strengths, but you connect with people in your weaknesses. There's something about that. It says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, he's deceiving himself. So, so let's stop deceiving ourselves. You know, let, let's dust off that corny Christian phrase I promise I would never say from the pulpit here in Solace. <laughs> But the church is not a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. And that is still true. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost, and that was and is us. Now, this will also produce grace-based maturity. Like when you have a grace-based identity, when your relationship with God is not based on your works, but Jesus' works for you, there's, there's an identity that you find that you don't have to go try to find it elsewhere or find it in your spiritual performance. It also produces ministry and relationships that have space, that have grace. And, and, and grace is, you know, sometimes grace is misunderstood to be a permission slip to sin more. Like, oh, I'm forgiven. Let's get it on. Let's go for it. Not literally, hello. But you know what I mean? Like, we got grace. Now, Paul speaks to this, doesn't he? In Romans 6, he's like, hey, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, that, that's sometimes how grace is understood. But the biblical idea of grace is not that it's a problem that we should stay away from because if, you know, if people get too much of the grace of God in their hearts, they're really going to sin. No, no. If that's happening, that's not the grace of God. That's something called cheap grace. That's, something, that, that's a grace that has nothing to do with the cross, Biblical grace in Scripture, when it's in a heart, when it's in a community, it is, not, um, is not a threat to maturity. <laughs> it's not a threat to, if you tell people that God really loves them, is going to forgive their sin. You've got to be careful if you say that, because then they're going to sin. No, in Scripture, the idea of grace is it's almost like the ripe soil where true spiritual growth happens. It's actually the opposite. I want you to see a verse that I think gets brushed over a lot, Titus 
2.11. This is one of the tightest verses in the whole Bible. Youth group jokes, they come out every now and then, okay? All right. For the grace of God, check this out, that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So we have the grace of God appearing to all of us. The grace of God has appeared to all men through the display of the cross and through Jesus. Now notice this, teaching us. Notice this, the grace of God is not just pardoning us, it's power to teach us. We get to learn from God's grace to deny ungodliness and worldly lust that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Imagine grace being so real to a heart that a life begins to change. And, like, let me say this. This is the only, like, positive kind of spiritual growth that really happens. You know, the two dangers, like, if your maturity in Christ is not first rooted in an identity in Christ and in grace, what you end up doing is either puffing yourself up with pride when you look in the mirror and you're like, look at who I've become. I serve a church. I read my Bible. I don't do those sins like those people. I used to, but not anymore. I'm different now, right? So there's this pride thing that can happen. That if it's all about you and your... Or the other thing can happen where it's not pride, but it's despair. You're like, I'm not like them. I'll never be like them. I'm, I'm, I'm alone. I'm the only struggler. But when, when the heart is rooted in grace, there's an identity, there's ministry, and that flourishes. That leads to the flourishing of true maturity. Lastly, we'll close with this one. You have Israel experiencing the delivering power of God. So they experience the, together through the Passover, they experience the pardoning grace of God. And they experience it. They don't just know about it. They're to revisit it. They are to be a grace-based community of people. And they're to experience all that grace can produce in a church, in a community of faith. But you know the story. They go on to also experience the delivering power of God. This is so cool. We know, we know uh, about this. Pharaoh, uh, he gets his heart super hardened. And there's the verses right there. They pass through the Red Sea. Uh, as by dry, lound, uh, dry, dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. So last plague happens. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. The people are, are forced out of Egypt at this point, And they're making their way out of Egypt. God is delivering them from the enemy here. Uh, and then, as God promised, Pharaoh has a change of heart. He changes his mind, and he goes, nah, I think I'm going to go back and get my slaves. That's what was in his mindset. So he pursues Egypt. Uh, it tells us that when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched toward them. This is terrifying. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Notice this. Then they said to Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? What a great question. Like, Moses, was there not enough death space in Egypt? That's why we're here, right? This is, the, this is where we die. Got it. Why have you so dealt with us to bring us out of Egypt? And notice what they say here. This is a really interesting comment that they make. Is not the word that we told you in Egypt saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? So give me liberty or give me death was not their mantra. It was, back then, this is how people thought. They said, I'd rather live than be free. Okay? And, and so this was the, the system of government even then. Let me enslave, let me force. And they go, we'd rather just be enslaved. We'd rather not have autonomy and freedom than, than die. Uh, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than we should die out here in the wilderness. 
And then uh, Moses gives them this incredible sermon. He goes, do not be afraid. Right? Well, as a preacher should, stand up in front of the midst of terrified people. Don't be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. Now, this is verse 14. Moses gives this like William Wallace battle cry. Don't be afraid. God will intervene. God will save. And then there's this, this, the next verse says, And the Lord said to Moses, Moses, why do you cry to me? So there's like a hidden moment here in these verses. Like there's Moses on the pulpit. Don't be afraid. And Moses gets off the pulpit. He's like, God, I just told them not to be afraid. So what are, what are we going to do about this? I just preached a great sermon. Everyone's fired up now. Where are you? Right? Like that's what he's doing. And so, so Moses preaches. And then God says to Moses, why do you cry to me, boy? All right. Tell the children of Israel. And this is sometimes all we need to hear God say to us. Listen. Go forward. Keep going. Don't stop. This is sometimes the greatest display of faith that you could show is you keep going. In the face of opposition, in the face of impossibility, when you want to stop, you want to give up, and you want to die. Keep going, God says. Move forward. It says this, Moses is told by God, lift up your rod, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the, and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground around, uh, through the midst of the sea. God says, and I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, and they shall follow them, and I will gain honor over Pharaoh and all his army and his chariots and his horsemen. And, and you know, you, maybe you've seen the movie, but you, you've heard the story. This is exactly what God does at the Red Sea. He brings a great wind and holds the waters up. This great wall as he parts the sea. And another key point of the miracle that we forget to tell is he makes the ground dry. So it's, they're not like sludging through, you know. God dries it up, right? And so there's this incredible miracle where God, he shows up. By, and all they had to do was keep going forward. This is so beautiful. In the face of impossibility where there was no hope left except to cry out to God, God says, move forward. And God delivers them. God saves them from their enemy. We know Israel passes through, and then the waters crash down upon Egypt and all of Pharaoh's armies. Israel experiences the delivering power of God, and I love this. What a great picture for us, a reminder that you and I, we cannot defeat the enemies we face on our own. Maybe think about that for a second. What are some of the enemies that you face? What sort of powerful foes lie at your door? What sort of experiences in your life have caused you to want to stop and give up because of how hard it is? And what would it look like for you in this moment to look to a God who delivers? Um, the Bible says that this is actually our heritage as Christians. It says about Jesus that he has delivered us from the power of darkness. I love this. And conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. This is our experience too. What is the church? The church is a community of people whom Jesus has delivered from the power of darkness. A power that we couldn't overcome on our own. In fact, it was, a, it was something that was overpowering us. The, the greatest foe of all was death. We know this. It's your biggest enemy, you and me. Death. Jesus delivers us from death. Jesus kills death through death. He dies and he rises victoriously, delivering us. But, but it's so much more than that. It's, it's not just an experience one day, 
But, you know, when you look at the Gospels, you see Jesus bringing deliverance everywhere he goes. Delivering people from the power of darkness. I wonder if you've settled for maybe just an experience like this that's um, only a futuristic thing. You've settled for a future hope. You've settled for future, one day I'll be delivered, one day. But I wonder if Jesus is saying to you today, I want to deliver you right now. I don't just have power then, I have power right now to deliver you. So what is that thing that you're up against? What is that power that you've been trying to overcome on your own? And are you willing to go forward and experience the deliverance of God in that area? You know, Notice that God was going to do his part. I love that. God's like, I'm going to deliver. That's on me. The, you're not, you're, it's not, you can't deliver yourself. I'm the one that does the delivering. I'm the one that's got to provide the miracle. I'm the one that has to set you free from the power of that addiction. I'm the one that's, that, that provides the power for you to be free from the power of that anxiety, the power of that sin, the power of that shame. I'm the one that does the delivering. But you got to be the one who goes forward. you got to be the one that comes to me. I'm here ready, willing to deliver you. I'm here, here to set you free. But Moses, you've got to lift the rod. There's what you've got to do, and there's what, there's what God will do. And, and God won't do what we do, what we need to do. And we can't do what he does, but he calls us to experience that same deliverance. You know, the last miracle that Israel experienced, it's very similar. It's the triumphant work of God. You, you saw this was the last one. It's kind of interesting because the Red Sea... And the walls of Jericho, 40 years later, both symbolize God bringing his people into a place of victory. God bringing his people from enslavement to freedom, whatever it is they're enslaved by. Uh, it's really interesting because the Red Sea is God bringing them victory from their enemy. Isn't that really interesting? The enemy's coming and attacking, and they are unable to defeat the enemy on their own. And so they hope in God, they obey God, and God delivers them. Shows the power of God to deliver us from our enemy. But when you get to the next miracle, which is Hebrews 11, this victorious work of God, they, they circled the walls of Jericho and they fell down. If they were circled over those seven days, they're circled seven times on that last day. And this is an interesting uh, display of God's victory because it's, a, it's victory over the enemy. One is more defensive, like the attack is coming from the outside. And God wants to deliver us from the power that's coming against us. And the other is more offensive. This is really interesting. The other is, is Israel going into enemy territory, not fleeing from the enemy. And God bringing victory into impossible situations ahead of them, leading them in triumph in that way. You know the story, right? Israel is finally at the place where they're inheriting the promised land. It's 40 years after the Red Sea. They have been wandering in the wilderness. Moses has died. Leadership has shifted hands from Moses to Joshua. Joshua has this incredible encounter in Joshua 5. It came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho, they lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. Joshua is a brave homie. He says to him, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Now notice the answer. He said, no. That's not good, okay? No. And so Joshua's like, are you for Israel or are you for Jericho? And God goes, no, no, no. This is not a Israel versus the world thing. This is God establishing his kingdom on earth through a people. 
seeking to bring the light of the kingdom into the darkness. No, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and he worshipped. Some would say that if, if this was just an angel, just an angel, uh, then the angel would have said, stop worshipping me, you know, worship God alone, like in Revelation. But he doesn't say that. This, a lot of people have pointed to, is likely a, what's called a Christophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament as the commander of the army of the Lord. And, and Joshua then goes, what does my Lord say to his servant? The commander says, take your shoes off, all right? You know, no shoes, no service. Here he's like, shoes, no service. So take them off. Take your sandal off your foot. Why? The place where you're standing is holy. Joshua did so. And uh, it tells us that Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. No one out. None came in. Jericho is this fortress, this mighty fortress. It says in, in earlier in, in Joshua, with walls to the heavens. This is a mighty stronghold that God is calling, this impossible wall that God is facing them to overcome. And the Lord said to Joshua, see, I've given Jericho into your hand. That's all he needed. That's all Joshua needed. It's king and the mighty men of valor. I, I'm giving them into your hand. Here's the commands. Here's the military strategy, okay? March around the city, all you men of war. You shall go all the way around the city once. You shall do this six days. And the seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times. And the priests shall blow the trumpets. And it shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn. When you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout. And then the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, every man straight before him. So imagine Joshua bringing this battle plan to his army. There's the fortress. There's the victory ahead of us. Here is the plan. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna have a parade. Like up to the battle? No, as the battle. We're going to, like they're like a dance battle? What's going on? Like why don't, a parade battle. No, you, we're going to march around the city. And we're going to sing praise to God. You know, it could be maybe like Rahab, who we'll learn about next week. Maybe some of these Gentiles will be converted to the living God. Maybe they'll bow their heart. Maybe they'll bow their knee to the one true God. But what we're going to do is we're going to march around for six days. On the seventh day, we're going to go seven times, seven trips around the city. That's the plan, and God is going to give us the victory. Now, th this is insane. <laughs> this is awesome. Uh, it's a great picture. First of all, I love this. Um, God gives Israel a battle plan for their first battle that, um, how do we say this, that would provide evidence that only God could have given them the victory. This is huge. Like God, there's other ways that God could have given them victory, but he's like, I'm going to remove any opportunity for you to be tempted to think that it was your strength. I'm going to remove any like strategy you may have I'm gonna, it's, there's no tool in your toolbox that's going to give you what you need here. I'm going to provide a miracle. I'm going to give you a victory in such a way that it will only undoubtedly be of me. And I think God does that for us sometimes. We face something impossible. We face some, some kind of stronghold, whatever the stronghold is. I don't know what it is for you. Some kind of wall that's impregnable. Some kind of thing that we're trying to tear down. It could be a, a broken marriage. It could be a broken relationship. Maybe the, your, it's, it's the spiritual awakening of your friends, your coworkers, your family. It could be personal, your own stronghold that you're facing. Sometimes, 
God will allow us to run out of our own resources so that we run to him. Sometimes God will allow us to be there with no other tools, nothing else in the bag, so that we can actually wage the war through trusting in him, through calling upon him. I love the scripture here in 2 Corinthians 10. I'll invite the band to come out as we close in song. It says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. See, whatever stronghold is around you, whatever stronghold is, is before you, the real question is, how are you waging the war? What is the way that God wants us to war in the face of that? And the temptation is to try to do it on our own. And sometimes we get stuck there. We get stuck in the flesh, with fleshly methods, with fleshly means, trying to just muster up enough strength to do it. And what we need to hear is the same words that, that Moses said to the people, just stand still for a second. Just stop striving. Stop trying to pull out the next tool to try to break down this wall. What if you just began to pray? What if you began to worship? What if you shifted your trust from yourself to God? What if you began to wage war with spiritual weapons in order to see God produce spiritual solutions? This morning, my question to you as, as we began was, how have you experienced God? Listen, my prayer for you is that God would be more than a concept. He'd be more than an idea, but he would be who he is to you. A real living person, an experience to be expected. And whether that's his grace in your life that you need to experience today, forgiveness of your sin through Jesus in a fresh way. Maybe that's an experience of deliverance from the power of something over your life. Maybe it's an impossible situation that you're face up against, that you've run out of resources to fix. Whatever it is, Here's your hope. You can experience the living God. His grace can invade your sin. His power, his deliverance can invade whatever slavery you find yourself in. And ultimately, his strength can pull down every and any stronghold. You know, that's our hope. Our hope is not in ourselves. It's ultimately in God. And that's what it means to live by faith. Sometimes faith is as simple as turning our attention off ourselves to God. That's faith. God, I'm going to start looking at you. Stop looking at myself, looking at my own sin, looking at my... Sometimes we're too self-conscious. We're hyper-conscious of what I need to do. And God just says, no, come to me. Are you exhausted? Are you tired? I bet you are. Come to me and I'll give you some rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Experience my presence and watch what I can do through that. I can do much more through an experience with me than just you trying to muster it up on your strength. Amen? Amen.